Sayoma. This is Generation Justice. I am Tamara Kalaki, your host and a member of the village of Walatoa. And I'm your other host, Brennan Olivier, and a member of the Zuni Pueblo. Generation Justice is a multimedia movement that trains youth to harness the power of media to create social change. Welcome to a special edition of our program. This hour is dedicated to resistance and resiliency. The indigenous people alive today are the survivors of colonization and genocide. Many Native nations hold a belief called the Seventh Generation Prophecy. Some believe that we're in the time of the Seventh Generation that would bring indigenous liberation. Others believe that every generation is the Seventh Generation. In this hour, we bring you voices discussing the prophecy as well as indigenous activists talking about some of their recent victories. We have guests from many nations, including Casey Camp Hornrick, an elder from the Ponca Nation, who will explain the Seventh Generation Prophecy. We'll also hear from Christina Castro, Rob Brown, and Lynette Houses about what this prophecy means to them. Amanda Blackhorse, a Diné activist, will also discuss indigenous identity. Then, we speak locally with Nick Estes and Melanie Yazi, who just led the victory for Albuquerque's recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day. Throughout the hour, you'll hear music about indigenous resistance and resilience. We start with John Trudell, a citizen of the Santee Dakota Nation and a lifelong indigenous activist. He has inspired many people with his words, activism, and art. Recently, John walked back to the Creator. His last words to community were, celebrate love and celebrate life. Here is his song with Annie Humphrey called Spirit Horses. indigenous person alive in this world is the product of profound love, sacrifice, and resiliency. Our ancestors survived land theft, relocation, reservations, broken treaties, slavery, colonization, and genocide. They fought for us because they believed that their great, great, great grandchildren would walk this earth with their teachings and traditions still alive. Some of them prayed for us as they took their last precious breath. There are many variations of the seventh generation prophecy and indigenous thoughts on life. We want to share a few of those with you. We welcome Lynette Houses from the San Carlos Apache Nation, Rob Brown, who is Anishinaabe, Christina Castro, who is Achiman, Taos, and Hamas Pueblos, Nick Estes from the Cuitrashuyate, and Melanie Yazi of the Diné Nation. We are so honored to welcome the wisdom of Casey Camp Hornrick, an elder from the Ponca Nation who was a lifelong political and environmental activist. Dagote, my name is Lynette Houses. I'm from the San Carlos Apache tribe in San Carlos, Arizona. I'm Chiricahua Apache, enrolled member. I'm also Diné and Taos Pueblo. My name is Robert Dwayne Brown and I agreed to be one of the features in the movie, The Seventh Fire. I'm from the Whitest Reservation, from a village called Pine Point. 
My name is Melanie Yazi. I'm one of the co-founders and lead organizers with the Red Nation. Um, I'm also a PhD candidate, hopefully finishing my PhD here in the next six months. Uh, my name is Nick Estes. I'm from the Kuichashigate, the Lower Brosu tribe um, in South Dakota. I am a co-founder and lead organizer with the Red Nation, and I'm also a PhD candidate in American Studies at the University of New Mexico. My name is Christina Castro. My tribes are Jemez Pueblo, where I'm enrolled. I'm also Taos Pueblo, and I'm also Achiman from Southern California. My name is Casey Campornick in my colonized world. I belong to the dwindling tribe that's suffering environmental genocide in north central Oklahoma. We were taught that prophecy is a way of walking because our people understood what was to be coming next. So to define that is impossible. I think I have the feeling that each and every one of us is that if we choose to be. But we have to make a conscious choice to be a part of walking prophecy and living prophecy and saying we can make the difference. We're those ones. That's who we are. This prophecy was started by our Grand Medicine Society, in which their belief is simply to prolong life. And what that means is to make healthy decisions. A part of that prophecy is the Anishinaabe would stop living the ways of Medewin. We would start to live the ways of another people. So part of that prophecy is during that sixth generation, there are going to be individuals they're going to take it upon themselves to try to pick up the pieces of the past and to try to push us back towards living the life of Madewin, Bamadaziwin, the good life. I think every generation is critical, but I think we really are in a critical time and our elders are leaving us and those are the knowledge keepers. And once they're gone, I wonder, you know, what we're going to have or how authentic we're going to be to our true indigenousness. What I was told and what I was taught can be kind of summed up in a story that a dear friend of mine and also um, a Dakota Unchi or a, a Dakota grandmother told me. Um, she said, you don't even own your own life, my dear. You're just living here to make sure that the next generation has a place to live. And so I think of it in that sense is that occupying this position in time and space is committed to making sure that there will be a future generation. I think that's a really beautiful thing. A lot of elders say that our generation is the seventh generation, and I truly believe that. I felt the calling, and I know a lot of my generation and my friends, they hear that calling. We need to keep on waking up our seventh generation because this is what we were here for. This isn't just an indigenous fight. That's all it takes is one ripple effect to wake up the masses. I'm really proud of what my generation is doing, and I really believe that we are the seventh generation, and we have that responsibility, and we're alive, and we're activated right now, here, today. The seventh generation is really just about creating the conditions for a possible future for Indigenous people. And this is really important because we live in such a precarious condition. Our lives are so, so utterly shaped by so many different kinds of violence, right? And the history of genocide, which obviously also shapes the concept of the seventh generation, is something that's still very much alive, right? We live in a colonial present. Colonialism isn't a thing of the past. 
as a Diné woman, as a, just as an indigenous person living in the modern world, I also need to be engaging in struggle and sacrifice so that our future generations can exist. You're seeing young people actively becoming involved in our social movements to save our culture. And I think those things are very powerful. And we also see women leading these movements. And women are starting to say, hey, we've had enough. We've had enough of being unequal in our societies. And we want to make changes. And, you know, there's a saying that goes, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. We have the strength to lead our generations into that next phase of existence. My hopes and dreams is by the time that I'm taking that westward journey, when my life on this land has ended, is that I would have at least given it my all, put my heart and soul, give all my effort into what I believe in, and what I believe in right now is to sing my songs like how they were meant to be sung and to get my people to engage and to believe in our music again to believe in our our traditions, our teachings, to gather, to embrace each other, to love each other, to heal each other, to laugh with each other, to cry together, to move together. I just want, in some form or another, to help my people move in the direction that they're supposed to be going as a whole. One message I have for Indigenous youth would be to express yourself and not be afraid to express yourself. You just got to keep that survivor mentality in your heart, but don't keep it all bottled up inside. You got to express yourself and, you know, get your fight out. I use my art as my weapon. We're the seventh generation, and it's our time to fight and to be resilient and strong because we're here because our ancestors fought. So I'm asking you to stay strong and just do what you got to do. Keep fighting for the people. If you don't do it, nobody will. And we got to do it for our future generations and our children and our people's survival. Anything you do every day can be a political action. Being a, Lending words of support to somebody you see who's being bullied could be a political action. Registering to vote when you're 18 can be a political action. Helping your grandma, you know, go to the store and practicing language with her, that can be an empowering political act. You know, people think, what can I do? Or I can't do anything. Or who am I? You're very important. Young people are very important. And at this point, young people are going to be the ones that are going to have a huge stake in whether our culture continues or it just dies off and we just become assimilated and become like everybody else. So don't underestimate your ability to create change in your community. Returning back to my roots, pretty much, it saved me from exiting this earthly life because I was killing myself living the way that I was living. I was destroying myself from within. To return to my culture, it was so powerful. It was so moving to me. For one, I'm like, why didn't I think of this before? Why didn't I make this decision before instead of going through all of what I went through? Using my culture as a driving force, I can't fail. I really can't. I don't even feel like failure is an option at this point don't believe in that divisive rhetoric that mainstream society tries to shove down our throats. And accept your brothers and sisters, whether they're gay, straight, half-breeds, quarter-bloods, transgender, we don't have any room to leave anybody out of this struggle. We all have to accept each other, support each other, and build each other up. Stay strong, stay blessed, stay prayerful, and keep fighting the good fight. 
Thank you all for reminding me about the beauty and importance of our indigenous people and also for giving us hope for the future. Thank you all for your explanation of the seventh generation prophecy. I related the most with the explanation of making a conscious decision to become a walking prophecy. This made me think that no matter where we come from, we can all be a part of this prophecy. This is really cool because I have not been raised within my tribe and this is something that has not been taught to me. Now we will hear Let's Steal the Sun Back from Savage Family, a group of indigenous hip-hop artists from the U.S. and Canada. You are listening to a special edition of Generation Justice, where we are honoring the seventh generation prophecy and how it is alive today through indigenous resiliency. As we heard earlier in our show, the indigenous way of life is to create a better future for the world. Amanda Blackhorse from the Diné Nation recently spoke at the University of New Mexico about her activism and the roots of Native American stereotypes. She has been one of the primary leaders in the National Change the Mascot movement against the Washington football team that continues to use a racist name and logo. Amanda was a head plaintiff in the landmark case where the Washington team lost their trademark rights. Here is Amanda Blackhorse. Yet a she a man of black horse ain't she a she in the stone touching ebushes chin sit not Jenny that she chedo a she had a schnelle auto disinsade do a I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit more about the basics of the mascot issue and why we are doing what we're doing and go back to what exactly the R word means. So that's why I wanted to do this presentation, but I also want to show how this relates to all of those other issues that you know we talk about, like border town violence and so many issues that are happening today, like land issues, water issues, and that sort of things. Native mascotry comes from a certain time period, um, the turn of the century. And it was a time when America at the time was obsessed with the westward expansion, cowboys versus Indians, and it's this obsession that kind of came about around about that time. And I recently watched the documentary called Real Engines, and it gave a really, really great description of where the Hollywood Indian and the stereotypes of Native people come from. And a lot of that has to do with film. So right about this time, the first film came out. One of the first films that was ever shown the first etoscope to show a film was of Pueblo traditional dancers, and that was shown in Times Square. And the obsession just got bigger and bigger. So basically, our identities have been colonized. Who we are has been stripped away completely and been replaced with these stereotypes of what people think that we look like and what people believe that we are. And so, you have the stereotypical Hollywood Indian, and that's really where mascots have started from, was the image. And then, as you go further into early 1900s, you have 
right about 1930. If you go back and you research a lot of these teams, a lot of them have came about right about that time. The Washington team, they were first called the Braves. Actually, they were the Boston Braves. They moved to DC. They wanted to change their name. They changed it to the Redskins. And so th that was in 1933. They have schools like the Illini, right, in Illinois, the University of, of Illinois came about about that time. You also have Cleveland Indians as well. And there's so many teams that came about right about that time. And so now what they do is they tout this thing of this is our tradition. This is what we've always been doing. But we have to also think about where it comes from and the time frame and the, the culture and what was happening to Native people at that time. At that time, we didn't have a whole lot of rights. We were basically trying to survive as indigenous people on our own land and, and suffering in so many different ways. Today, we begin to kind of uncover this and unveil where a lot of this comes from. And so the origins of the R word, of course, it comes from a time of bounty hunting, hunting people. And so large amounts of money were exchanged for this to happen. So this was during the time of the extermination era. And it was reported that people were able to make a pretty good living just off of human bounty hunting. So Dan Snyder's definition of the R word is completely different, obviously, here. He says it's about football, fun and games. It's not a big deal. You guys just get over it. We're honoring you. Jeez, accept it. And so this is what we are battling, this sort of arrogant behavior and arrogant attitude of I can do this because I have money. I'm the corporation. I have the power to call you guys whatever I want to call you guys. You know, we can continue to, to put pressure and social pressure, but what do a lot of these people understand? They understand lawyers. They understand, you know, we're going to get you where your money is. We're going to go for your patent. Not to say that protest isn't a good thing, but we have to be a little more crafty in our approaches in taking a lot of these people down. There is a law that says you cannot patent something that is racist or disparaging to a group of people. And so, that's what we went after. And we won. We won in 2014, and then we won again in, in June because our original win was great, and they appealed it, of course, and we won that one, and now they're appealing it again. And my guess is I'm very hopeful that we're going to win the next one. You see that socially acceptable attitude to demean people, it carries on through our daily lives. I remember being really little and being called a stupid Indian because I bumped into someone in a store. I remember my principal calling us all stupid Indians because the, the guys decided to graffiti the bathroom and he brought us all in an assembly and said, you guys are just a bunch of stupid Indians. These things dehumanize us and they make us, we're, we're like animals to them. We're less than. And so until we get rid of these things, and we demand respect, and we demand how we want to be treated and how we want to be represented, these things will, I think they will continue. And I think things will get worse before they get any better. Because any time that you're, you're doing something, you're, you're making change happen, and you're confronting this sort of thing, people are going to be evil to you. And they're going to, they're going to say the most horrible things. And it will come, but it just means that change is happening. And you're, you're getting people to think and you're getting people to change the mindset that they've always known. And so this sort of thing, it's cool. Now it's, oh, well, you know, I'm not saying anything negative. 
it's actually, I'm thinking of you guys, it's, it's something that's cool. And, and you see it everywhere. Um, I think like last week I went to Subway and this guy was like, oh, he said, are you Indian? I said, yes, I'm, I'm Native American. And he goes, oh, wow, I moved here from Texas because I wanted to see the real Indians. And he said, I want to see teepees and everything like that. I'm like, we don't live in teepees. But I actually kind of stopped going to that subway just because he just <laughs> keeps on. He doesn't learn. He doesn't listen. You know, I keep telling him, we don't live in teepees. And when you put it in the context of mascots are, are there to be ridiculed, mascots are there to be toyed with, they're there for fun and games, you're supposed to abuse a mascot, right? Because when two teams play, you're supposed to treat the, the mascot, you, you can honor it, and you can also treat it like crap. Um, and that's kind of the, the culture of games. And so when you put a native person in that spot, you're not only doing that to that person, you're also doing it to entire nations. You're doing it to all people, children, our elders, ourselves, our, our relatives, everyone is kind of at a free-for-all. And so these are some other things I think that we need to question in our day-to-day -day lives, things that we have always just kind of passed by. You know, some of us probably don't even think about it, and then some of us think like, oh man, that's really messed up, but I'm just gonna keep going. You know, and so when we start to question things like this, I think it brings about this sort of um, empowerment in, within ourselves and then within our communities as well. So what we're doing is, this is huge. We're turning back time and we're challenging what we've been taught all of these years. The things that have happened to our ancestors, we're challenging all of these things. And it's not easy because we're challenging 500 years of oppression and it's such a small period of time. Not just about mascots, it's about a lot of other things too. We're, we're rewriting our own narrative and you know we're not gonna have them write for us anymore. We're rewriting our story, right? We don't need someone to come in to save us. We're not asking for handouts. We're just asking to be respected. We just want to be left alone. And we want to decide for ourselves how we want to be represented in the world. Amanda, I'm very grateful for all the sacrifices you've made to be a voice for our community so that we can be acknowledged as humans. I pray the Creator will continue to bless you with many more opportunities to respectfully represent Indigenous people. One influential artist who uses her platform to bring awareness to missing and murdered Indigenous women is Inez Jasper. She is from the Skokel First Nation in Canada. Here is Inez Jasper featuring Jason Bernstick with Stalo. Every day I rise from my resting place Look up to the sky and I give him my thanks It's not my day, do it's gotta be done Don't forget where I came from I don't forget where I came from I don't forget where I came from The New Mexico-based Red Nation led the successful action to abolish Columbus Day and created Indigenous Peoples Day in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Lead organizers Melanie Yazi and Nick Estes, who we heard earlier in the program, joined GJ Fellow Katerie Zuni to talk about issues affecting the indigenous community, history of the Red Nation, and some of the other significant victories around the country. My name is Katerie Zuni. I am speaking with Nick Estes and Melanie Yazi of the Red Nation, who you heard from earlier in our show. Welcome to Generation Justice, Nick and Melanie. I'd like to start with my first question. So the Red Nation was really at the forefront of the Indigenous People's Day movement here in Albuquerque. Can you walk me through the story of that? We were sitting around our kitchen table. You know, we were going through like, well, what is the relationship of the city to Native people? Um, particularly out of the murders of Allison Gorman and Key Thompson, the city implemented certain strategies to address the, the so-called homeless population or the homeless problem in Albuquerque, specifically native homeless. We felt like it really exposed the lack of relationships that the city had and the lack of understanding that the city had. Um, in one of the reports that they issued, they said that native tribes need to get together and leverage their, quote, highly profitable Native American casinos, end quote, um, to address a problem that they didn't see as their own. That's kind of where we began to like look at like, well, why does, you know, why, why is a city like Albuquerque not at the forefront of change, specifically when there are all these cultural events like the Gathering of Nations, powwow, various art markets that sort of sell um, and profit from culture, but yet Native people have no political representation in the city and no recognition at all in this city. And we saw that as kind of like a psychological um, battle as well, because Native people were just disempowered. And so we felt, you know, to join this national and international movement of changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day as a way of empowering people um, specifically. And we went around to um, various community organizations and events and began sort of collecting signatures and creating a mailing list. And um, yeah, we didn't have any funding to do that. We didn't, you know, we didn't sit down and like raise money before we did it. We just did it because yeah. we felt like it was really important. It was symbolic change. Symbolic change is important, right? It sends a strong message. It's not so threatening um, that you're going to have a very difficult time establishing it or getting something like that passed, like a resolution through city council, which is what eventually happened this fall. And it really will help to galvanize and mobilize the community and really you know, announce not necessarily the Red Nation, but just to allow indigenous people to have a vehicle that sort of begins to build that change or to create the space for that kind of voice. Um, you know, changing Columbus Day is really it's incredibly important. And there's a reason why that movement has been growing. And I think in 2016, we're going to see even more cities kind of like falling like dominoes, basically. Um, when it comes to that movement this year, it was really exciting to see the different places and the amount of excitement people had around changing the name to various iterations of Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, but for us, it was really sort of an entry-level campaign to galvanize the community, to start to put pressure and awareness upon the powers that be in a place like Albuquerque. So the movement itself started kind of on campus, and then it migrated to the Red Nation, because the Red Nation, even though we work with some campus-based groups and they're definitely students involved in what we do, we're very firmly rooted in the community of Albuquerque. So then the Red Nation kind of took up that mantle just a couple of months, actually, after the Indigenous Peoples Day tour, if I remember if that was what it was called, yeah, it at UNM in October of 2014. And it was 
organized by um, undergraduates uh, specifically, but also there were a lot of community members that came out um, because they were like, nothing like this has happened since the 70s. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, the what's happened around the Abolish Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day movement is that the way that it was being framed by Native people in 40 years, you know, in Albuquerque. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the movement gained such remarkable traction is people were people are hungry for it. Let's just be honest to give you a bit of a timeline. Um, October 2014 is the Indigenous Peoples Tour of UNM. Red Nation forms in November, December 2014. Um, we work with Kiva Club and some other forces at UNM to try to get resolutions passed. ASUNM did approve, if I remember. It was an incredible battle. I mean, it's, it's strange that something symbolic and like kind of a no-duh <laughs> kind of thing required so much effort and work within the university, um, but then it wasn't passed forward to the Board of Regents, and so nothing ever really has changed officially at UNM. We had invited um, and been working with uh, former city council president, Ray Garduño, told us, he was like, I'll push this through city council, I'll, you know, I'll be the backer, um, the sponsor. We met him in February of 2015. 2015. It was pretty awesome that somebody, you know, from power just like came and showed up. And Ray Garduño is, you know, he's been really amazing and a huge champion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that we're all pretty much indigenous gets lost. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's that way because of intentional narratives that were set a long time ago, for mm -hmm. sure. I would like for you to give me an understanding of what the city council's resolution means to the Red Nation. Yeah, I think something that's really important to point out, and this is part of like a continuing narrative, actually, because we kind of went up to February 2015, and it was a bit dormant because we were doing some other stuff on border town violence in Gallup, and decided in August that we were going to form a coalition. Um, it was a very bottom-up. It was not top-down. It wasn't like Ray came back to us in the early fall and was like, hey, let's do this. We had already been doing work for two months before that. Um, the coalition was comprised of about 20 or th 30 Ultimately, like 30 different organizations, community groups, activist groups, um, some, some groups here at UNM, uh, not just indigenous-based groups, right, but it was really like a broad-based coalition that was invested. Um, we had cultivated these relationships, and then they were, we were all invested in this campaign to abolish Columbus Day. It happened really quickly. It, it was just beautiful. And it, it was really interesting because it was like, wow, this is a victory. You know, Ray had, Ray had apparently been still thinking about this all those months, right, since February 2015. And then we had also been doing all of this mobilization on the ground. And it kind of just came together in that moment. And then it was on October 19th when the resolution was passed, mm -hmm. right? That was a Monday city council meeting. So the proclamation happened on October 7th. Um, the march was on October 12th. And then the actual resolution, which was unanimous, passed on October 19th, and the resolution creates a city ordinance, correct, mm -hmm. for that particular day. Um, so it's no longer Columbus Day in the city of Albuquerque. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of the general timeline for how all of that stuff happened. Yeah, when I when I saw that on my Facebook feed, I was like, are you sure? Like, <laughs> right? yeah. Is this an Onion yeah. article or something like that? But when I realized it was legitimate, I was like, what? Yeah, we were like holding the paper in our hands and we're like, is this, did this like, Does this happen? happen? Is this real life? <laughs> <laughs> what other gains or wins have there been recently in the U.S. that you equate to the wind of indigenous resiliency and resistance? Um, the movement around anti-racism. Um, is really gaining traction, and it has been through Black Lives Matter. I think it has been through 
I think what we've seen is like really incredible and growing interest and mobilization around the anti-mascot issue. But just in general, the way that um, symbolic change and symbolic violence and the relationship of that to anti-black racism or to anti-Indian racism, um, to sexism, um, to homophobia, et cetera, all the different kinds of oppressions that, that many communities face, that intersectional movement is growing in the United States. And I think that's one of the reasons why the climate was so perfect here in the fall of 2015 for what we were doing in Albuquerque, Albuquerque to gain national traction. And it was even gain, gaining international attention. You know, I remember the meme, there was a meme that came up <laughs> the very next day after the proclamation was passed on October 7th. And it was just a black meme and in white letters all of the cities in the U.S. that had passed IPD kind of resolutions, and Albuquerque was at the very top of that. Mm -hmm. We have a very expansive vision that's very much based on working across difference, that's engaging in intersectional forms of oppression, um, because we see that as really the only hope that indigenous people have, you know, for having a future, for having a seventh generation. To bring it back home to where I come from, the Lower Burosu tribe, um, our tribe was the only reservation to have key infrastructure for the Keystone XL pipeline to be built on it. And we fought tooth and nail. And I went back, you know, several times to work with um, our elected representatives, as well as community organizers. And we had a council that was pro KXL. And our tribe overthrew that council, and then declared war on TransCanada, which has not, to my knowledge, ever been done in the history of the United States. Native nations declaring war on corporations. To me, that is, you know, we're just a small little tribe. Like we historically- Real, real small. Yeah, we're really small. <laughs> and to me, that demonstrates that there's this shift going on. And it was, you know, while all these environmental groups were like, oh, we gotta, you know, we gotta talk nice. You know, we gotta we gotta appease these guys. We can't just be mean. And and they were like, you know, our nation, the Chete Shakoi Oyate, the Great Sioux Nation, was like, no, we're gonna declare war, <laughs> and you're not gonna come through our treaty land. Um, we we have you know measures in place in case you decide to build the pipeline. Um, but it wasn't just us acting alone. We had made coalitions with um, non-native groups as well and gained international sort of like attention through that. And so that was a huge victory, not because Obama, after six years, decided to make a decision on it. It was because indigenous peoples led that movement. We're in like a place where people are making these connections. They're inherently talking about, right, like violence against women is the same as the violence against the earth. That's also an intersectional kind of coalitional way of thinking. And so I just think we're seeing this moment where people are bringing things together and we understand the basis of our of our shared sort of politics of protest and resistance and change. And it's not really based on culture. It's based on sort of the political condition of colonial oppression. Right, colonial oppression or oppression from sort of capitalist violence um, and what it does to our communities. Uh, so, like I said, as long as we continue to work towards it and work together, I think we have a real hope. There's actual hope. And that's what that march represented here in Albuquerque. People were crying. I mean, little kids all the way up to like elders were crying because they could feel it. <laughs> See, I even want to cry right now because it's it was such... It's a powerful feeling when you know that there's actually hope because there hasn't been some for so long. And I do, the, the struggle's real, it's hard, 
There's a lot of violence that we're fighting against, but people are willing, I think at this point, to go back out in a way that we haven't seen for a very long time, to put things down on the line, to create conditions for having a future. I wanted to kind of think big picture, um, considering, of course, the history Mm -hmm. of colonization, of genocide, of everything, but then also looking at the hope in the seventh generation prophecies what is the significance of having something like the Indigenous People's Day of Resiliency and Resistance? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for the greater Indigenous community? I think, as a historian, to go back into history and to look at where this movement really began. And it began at the United Nations yeah, in the 1970s um, when uh, Indigenous peoples were first going to the United Nations as um, recognized NGOs or non-governmental organizations. You had the Indian, the International Indian Treaty Council, which formed in 1974 in the aftermath of the Wounded Knee um, siege in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and their goal was to take um, these these treaty claims to the World Court um, because federal court. There's a long story behind that, but federal court had dismissed them and said that well, if this is an international relationship, then federal court actually doesn't have jurisdiction, so you need to take it to international um, court. And so they went to the United Nations, but it's not like they just showed up in Geneva and were like, yeah, respect us. No, (laughs) they went through the process that we went through and they didn't go to the North Atlantic powers like in Europe. Um, They did to some degree, but by and large, it was the anti-apartheid movement, the South African anti-apartheid movement, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and various other so-called third world nations that were part of the non-aligned movement that pushed through the recognition process. And so it really happened in 1977 when there was the first uh, American conference, I can't remember the exact name, it was the first American conference on uh, American indigenous peoples. And in attendance were people from you know the South uh, South African apartheid uh, anti-apartheid movement, as well as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, as well as a lot of these uh, Middle Eastern countries and and countries of the so-called Third World and the non-aligned movement, and they were the ones that saw and recognized indigenous peoples. It wasn't the United States. It wasn't Canada. It wasn't, you know, the the Anglo settler colonies, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, because it directly challenged their interest in dominating indigenous peoples. And so we have to recognize that history before we can even begin talking about what happened with indigenous peoples that here, this was a struggle of colonized peoples around the world began as an you know international movement and it should remain as an international movement bringing bringing down the system of power that does such incredible violence to all of us to everything that we care about and to all of our relations i think is something that the red nation is always trying to focus on nick and melanie thank you mm-hmm. for all of your work for sharing with us all of your thoughts and ideas and really nourishing us and understanding how and why we fight for our communities and each other. I appreciate that and I appreciate your work. Nick and Melanie, I am so grateful for leaders like you who bring awareness to all the injustices against indigenous people living on and off the reservations. Without your hovering eye and your love for our people, these stories would remain untold. 
Music has always been a part of our ceremonies. A tribe called Red, a First Nation DJ trio, has brought our traditions to this generation. Here they are with their song called The People's Champ featuring Helen Bat. As we end tonight's program, I leave with a sense of hope. I am very grateful for all the people who share their love and energy to protect our next generations. Thank you, Casey Camphornick, Lynette Houses, Rob Brown, and Christina Castro for talking with us about the seventh generation prophecy. We would also like to thank Melanie Yazzie, Nick Estes, and Amanda Blackhorse for being a part of this special program. This is a Generation Justice production produced by Polly Dinetclaw and Roberta Rael. Production assistance by Kamaria Umi, Melissa Harris, Christina Rodriguez, Tamara Kalaki, Kateri Zuni, and George Luna Pena. Much appreciation to all our youth members here at Generation Justice. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation and Colin Alma Health Foundation. And of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Tamara Kalaki. And I'm Brennan Olivier. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Words, so stay tuned. We'll see you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Stay on fleet for the week. Achieve change. You already have all the knowledge and all the strength that you need to achieve your dreams. Legislations on the desk of a do-right congressman. Now he don't know much about the issues, so he picks up the phone and he asks advice of the senator out in Indian country. A darling of the energy companies who are ripping off what's left of the reservations. Huh. I learned a safety rope.